You'll never believe this. A pastor and a rabbi walk into a podcast to discuss how faith and tradition should inspire but not limit us. Yeah, we talk about stand-up comedy, surfing, religion, family issues, Doritos, hemorrhoids, the bears, and absolutely nothing at all. You'll have so much fun, you'll never believe we're actually religious leaders. Hey, I got a question. I, I, first, I got to say congrats, uh, happy Indigenous Peoples Day to you. Thank you. Yeah, I know it's a high holy holiday for you as well. Um, we no longer call it Columbus Day here in the States because Columbus had slaves. So now we celebrate the indigenous people that we, um, we as original immigrants kicked off of the land that they owned and then allowed them to come back so that we could have a holiday to celebrate them being kicked off. Wow. I'll tell you what, I'm warm, fuzzy feelings. Are you getting warm, fuzzy feelings from that? You know, we have the same thing here, by the way, Uh, Israeli independence day. There's a, there's the same thing in, uh, on the Arab, on the Arab side, it's called Nakba. And it's the day that they, they do not celebrate the day that Israel was declared a state. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a fad. Things are coming. I think people are going to start doing it. Yeah. Here's here's my take on what I thought about when I was uh, reading about this. I always find it funny when people have modern issues uh, and they lump all immigrants into one category. <laughs> because unless you're an indigenous people, a Native American of some sort, you descended from immigrants. Mm-hmm. Of course. And some of these folks are actually people who are second-generation Americans, meaning their parents immigrated here, and then they were born here, and suddenly they're turning around and saying, no immigrants. Oh. And so it's... Are you, it's, I'm sorry, you want the people who don't want people to come in and be part of your country to be, like, logical? That's what you're looking for? Yeah, I, I want some <laughs> sense of, like, okay, I get there needs to be a well-planned scenario of uh, assimilation and acculturation and, and uh, you know, the American way and getting into the system of benefits and taxes. There's got to be a well-planned way and we can't just give it, give it to everybody who, who, you know, survives across the border. Yes. Um, I get that we, we can't just give it to everybody, but I also think the argument of their immigrants is a bad argument because. Yeah. Uh, right. We, but it's like the, if, you're not from around here comment. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're all townies. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, when I was in when I was in college, um, our first like my first year before we actually met, um, my father saw uh, there's a road you remember that led from the campus, from the campus from where we usually were campus bound to the beach. Right, it was called 108. Right. Yeah. yeah. And when we started in school. That's a pizza delivery. I apologize about that. But when we started in school, they, um, there's a place called the 108 House. It closed like midway through, I think, our college career or maybe towards the end. I don't remember. Did you remember this one? It was like, uh, I don't think it was like so. right before Keep the going. interchange of Route 1. Anyway, so we saw that when I first was like moving in in my freshman year and my father says to my mother, I bet you, well, to all of us actually, I bet you that's where all the townies hang out. 
And my mother gets all uppity and is like, excuse me? How could you speak like that? Wait until, wait until Jamie's roommate finds out, you know, that's not polite. And my dad's like, he's from Long Island. She goes, <laughs> she goes well, you just said all the Italians go there. That goes, I didn't say Italians, I said townies. And I was like, I guess that's not as insulting. I don't know, maybe not. Did, did she, she mishear him or did she think yeah, townies? She, Italians heard him. she thought he said Italians. It was so upset that like she couldn't deal with it. And we were, that became a line from us. I bet you all the Italians hang out there. My mom was like, stop it, it's not funny. Did your parents have like a, a common like trigger for their arguments like that? Was it common? Like was that a typical like, mom mishears dad or mom misunderstands dad or something is that like what's the, what the trigger that? for an argument but i'll tell you what it was a common refrain in our family that my mother would mishear things that we did um like we were once talking about we used to have big our big meals for the year like here where you know Leah and i when we're not during covid time like we could have people over for two meals you know friday night saturday every shabbat that's that's like a that could happen all the time Right now, it's just us because, you know, everybody's in lockdown. But under normal circumstances, is that normal? But my, my family, we would have people over for the Passover Seder mm-hmm. and for the New Year. Those were like the two big times my mother would have people over. And we had a woman who was a, a Holocaust survivor who my father befriended somewhere along the way. And she oh. came to our, to our meals very regularly. And my mother, one year, for whatever reason, didn't invite her. And she felt horrible about it. And of course, to still wish us a happy new year, she came knocking on the back door in the middle of my mother's feverish cooking and like gave her flowers. And she felt horrible because she didn't invite her. And here she is cooking this huge meal and she knows that she's not invited to. And she's like, mess. And there was like this two second pause at the dinner table. And I turned to my mother and I said, so were you like, uh, wait right here, I'll be right back. And you ever like have that moment where you see someone, it could be your parent, could be a friend, where you see the wheels turning and you know that they're about to say something, but you can't stop them and it's too late. And she's like looking at me like, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 don't say it. And she goes, are you going somewhere? She says this to me. (laughs) I said, no, I was, mom, I was being you to her saying, wait right here. I'll be right back. Like, don't come in the house and look at all this food I'm cooking. And she's like, oh, yeah. Oh, she's like, oh, oh. So that became a common refrain of like, are you going somewhere? Like, understand <laughs> what somebody else is saying. What about you, though? In your family, was there a, was there a trigger? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there was a lot of, um, I don't know. I remember my dad would get uh, defensive often and, and, you know, non, uh, like he, like he would just, he would get loud uh, and uh, not let anybody you know, asking questions about anything and, and not want to address it. But I don't know if there was ever a, uh, like a pattern. I got to be honest. I'm having this flash to, to Anchorman when he's like loud noises. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, why are we shouting? <laughs> but was it, I mean, he just would get very, like, would he get defensive with you guys with children as well? Or just your mom? Yeah. If you, like if you asked him or, or called him out on something, um, whether, even if it was just inquisitive, he just like, he was just above, uh, criticism, I guess, or above, you know, questioning, like he was higher than the law and he, you know, didn't have to answer to us peasants. Understood. 
understand. Yep. So I'm sure there was a, there was a lot of tension from that because I don't know. My kids like to ask me lots of questions that I don't want to answer all the time. It drives me insane. Well, let me clarify. It wasn't all the time. My house, no, of course, of course, pretty tame and uh, pleasant and great. You know, loving, caring parents. That was Were not you like closer with your mother or your father. Did, was there what? Were you closer with your mother or your father, or were you close with both of them? It's closer with video games. Nice. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I was closer with one or the other. I think um, they were. They serve very different, you know, purposes. Uh, maybe that's common for most people. But my mom was very like affectionate and loving and caring, and my dad was supportive, but um, you know, somewhat distant and doing his own thing. Like he was always into playing video games himself and uh, by himself. Is that, is that something that you guys bonded over? Is no, we didn't. We never played together. Wow. He had, he had his games. We had ours. I don't even know. I mean, he, he, he played all these like role-playing games with like, you know, advanced warfare and uh, like developing characters. And we played like Super Mario Brothers and, of course. and Zelda. Yeah, it was that's, a like, that's a given. That's a given. A big world of... So, uh, but, you know, dad was, he was super into supporting us. We were so, we, we were just playing sports all the time. Um, and he was super supportive. He was there for every game, cheering us on loud and embarrassing sometimes. But, you know, always there. It was great to, um, to have that support. And, you know, they always bought us whatever we needed. And, and um, you know, I don't know. I never knew what our money situation was in the house. Right. But sometimes I got a sense that they were spending more than they, you know, had or could, or they were, you know, putting on a credit card and riding that for months and months. So my $120 Air Jordans probably, you know, cost 200 bucks by the time they paid off that credit card bill. Wow. But, you know, with interest and stuff, but it was, you know, I was like, yeah, these are the best. I want them. And they would, they would figure out how to make it work. And it was, so it's nice to be kind of sheltered from that. So they were great. Uh, we, had a, we had a very different sort of, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how this translates into my life now, but my parents were very sort of, I don't want to say, that there was, we never, we were never wanting, I don't think, for anything. I don't think I should ever put it out that my parents were not, you know, that super providing in any way. But, but they also had a line where it was like, you know, just because you see some toy in the store, not the saying that your parents did this, but I, I very much remember feeling a line of demarcation of like, if you want something, you have an allowance, save up. You know what I mean? Get it. Like yep. there was never, you know what I mean? Like, and I don't even, I don't remember, maybe there was one time that translated into like sneakers, you know, because I wanted a pair of sneakers and my other sneakers weren't like, you know, done. But I really wanted this other one because they were the cool ones that everyone had. So I had to save up for them because, you know, you already had a pair of sneakers kind of. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Huh. So anyway, I mean, did, did your relationship with your family, do you think it sort of translated into, I know we've, t- we've spoken about my journey at one point, but did, we didn't talk about yours as much. I mean, did it, did that come from your family? Where, where do you feel like your journey to being a pastor came from? Um, you know, we, we always grew up, we, we'd go to church, um, but it was always kind of like a, like it felt like an obligation because we, we, the, the first church we went to was right across the street from our house. And I remember we would go on Sundays when my dad said he wanted a donut. So I always took it as like, if you endure this for an hour, 
you get a free donut. <laughs> was it, it, the church gave it to you, or your father was like, that's our payment when we're done? No, no, no. The church, like the coffee hour afterwards. Always God, had, as um, we call it, as we call it, the kiddish. Right. So the the kiddish we have afterwards is like, of course, we're like hanging out there to to get like some real fish. You know what I mean? We're like, ooh, Uh, locks and and white fish. And like, you know, yeah, I would have never gone back. My dad would have never gone for that. He would have been like, nope, (laughs) that's probably why we're not Jewish. (laughs) We figured it out. (laughs) So um, so when I was in middle school, I think middle school, we started going to this. this other Lutheran church where they had a good youth group. My mom had heard about other youth. And I think, I, I think they just wanted us to have that, you know, kind of grounding. And um, what I found was I found more of a social connection and an opportunity to um, like explore who I was and, you know, middle school, it, it's like the worst age ever. Let's be honest. If you're listening and you're in you're in middle school, just you are the most awkward, strange little beast there ever is say, you know just just hang in there because it gets better <laughs> just hang in there um and i certainly was i was i was man i was just starting to sprout these you know gangly arms that had no control and so you know i and i had grown up with some a lot of good friends in the neighborhood but when i went to this youth group i could sort of be whoever i wanted to be and just came you know out of my shell socially and started doing, um, you know, a lot of trips with the youth group and the weekly um, confirmation classes where you're doing a two-year education. And it was um, it was just a place where I could, you know, fully be myself. And um, part of that was there was this camp up in New Hampshire. And if you're listening, yes, it looks exactly like a camp in New Hampshire from every movie you've ever seen with a camp in New Hampshire. Bill Murray was, yep. And uh, Jason, Jason Voorhees and his mother lived next door. Uh, oh, beautiful. Ready to ready with the hockey mask. But um, Ooh, uh, yeah. And we went, we'd go to this camp for like retreats and, and um, a couple of times a year. And it was just this amazing place. And, they really sort of, you know, affirmed who every person was and, um, you know, treated everyone with respect. And there was no place for, you know, name calling or making fun of others. I think there was, you know, some of that happens in every circle, but it, 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 it wasn't, they didn't make it feel safe and okay. You know, it wasn't tolerated as much. So it felt very, you know, comforting and, and you were away from your family and just amazing. So I, I kept going. I went, um, for a week on my own over the summer in, in their camp program. And I remember, so here's how I, here's how I got, here's how I say I got into ministry. Okay. I was in a, a snorkeling class on this lake in New Hampshire, which is comical in itself. Oh, yeah. You've already you can't see, It's so <laughs> dirty. You can't see like two feet in front of your face. Um, and I was 14 at the time and there was only one other kid signed up and he was eight years old. <laughs> <laughs> so so but the two counselors the two people teaching this class were these gorgeous you know 17 year old girls and at 14 that's like your biggest aspiration in life is to hang out with gorgeous older girls right like of that's course. that's how you so especially near water yeah. <laughs> <laughs> read bathing suits um so so they, so we just started, I mean, we just kind of made a joke of the snorkeling portion and I just started, you know, we would hang out and chat and swim and do goofy stuff. 
And at the end of the week, they said, you should come back and be a, a CIT, a counselor in training. And I remember having no idea what that meant or what that entailed. But I thought two gorgeous older women in bathing suits telling me I should do something is a sheer sign that I'm going to do it. So I remember getting in the car. My parents picked me up. It's a four-hour drive. And I don't remember what I did. I remember the first thing I said was, I want to be a CIT next year. And then my parents, they when they retell the story, they say, that I didn't stop talking for four hours about how great camp was and the and all these other things. And was so that they, summer or was that like after multiple summers? That was the first week that I had spent there. That was the only summer week I had spent there. Wow. And so it wasn't necessarily about faith or religion. Uh, sure. Those were components of it for sure. Uh, but it was just the fun and the experience, uh, you know, feeling loved and safe and, and appreciated. And um, so I remember my parents also, they, they retell the story. They say that after the, after, you know, I was upstairs unpacking and they both were like, I don't know what this CIT thing is, but he's got to do it because he's just a totally different, you know, person. And he, you know, cause I lit up. So they were great enough. They, they you know, they made me work to, to pay for the next summer, but I went there the next summer. And that was when I really got, you know, engage in the ministry on a deeper level. So they teach you how to um, read the Bible and digest Bible passages and then teach them in a very normal, practical way. And I still sort of pride myself on being able to take religion and faith and scripture and make it practical and relevant. And all of that stems from, you know, that, those eight summers, but that very first summer of, you know, you play a game of Foursquare or dodgeball or you'd do some arts and crafts. And, the, and, and during that time, you'd be talking about a Bible verse you just read or how God feels about you. Wait, or, this, was, this was like a gr- sort of a grassroots thing? Like it came up from the, from the campers or like the counselors were sort of initiating the, that the conversation? The counselors were, yeah, the counselors would facilitate it. And it didn't feel to you at all superimposed. It felt natural. No, it was very natural. I mean, it was normal. It was like, so how, you know, so we would be weaving a bracelet and for example, and someone would say like, how does this, how does this relate to this Bible passage in Ecclesiastes where it says, uh, you know, a threefold cord, you know, it says two people are better than one, but a threefold cord is not broken. Right. And so you're talking about like, oh, I wonder what that third cord is while you're braiding a bracelet because, you know, what you do at camp and and you're talking about how god's woven into your relationships as you you know bond and connect and grow with one another so it was very natural it wasn't you know didn't didn't seem coerced or forced or like there wasn't there was like bible time but it wasn't like oh now it's the boring part of our day before we go out and play soccer or we you know play in the mud it was like that's all a part of it and you'd pray before stuff and after stuff in a very fun normal way i remember we'd um one of my favorites was we'd pray the Lord's Prayer and we'd start off, everyone was kneeling on the ground, whispering as quiet as possible. And as you'd go through the Lord's Prayer, you'd get louder and start standing up more until, you're, until you have a crowd of like 60, 70 people, arms in the air, screaming as loud as they can at the end of the Lord's Prayer. And you're like, that's, that you just made that boring church prayer that people get through as slow and monotonously as possible on a Sunday and made it interesting and exciting. And so stuff like that, they just wove it into everything. And I think that really shaped kind of who I am, but also how I still approach um, preaching and ministry and 
getting involved with people is, is I feel if, if we're not experiencing God and trying to find where God is involved in our daily life, we're not going to really connect with a God who's also, you know, an hour a week isn't what God asks of us. And probably same for you, like temple is a couple hours a week, but that's, you know, if that's all there is, we're missing out on the God that's pervasive in our lives. So you know, a lot of that thing, ministry was shaped. I'm really, I'm really jealous about though, I should say. Because I feel like, and this could just, and, and someone else who you might meet who lives the lifestyle that I live might say that they don't experience it in this way at all. But I feel like in a lot of ways, the way that Judaism functions tends to be a little compartmentalized. Meaning, uh-huh. I, you, know, you said it's a, temple is a couple hours a week. Not when you're living an Orthodox lifestyle. When you're living an Orthodox lifestyle, and if you're really doing I don't want to say what you're supposed to be doing, but like if you're doing it, you're in, I, I'm, I could be in synagogue easily two, two hours a day, easily every day. I go in the morning yeah. and I would go in the, in the afternoon and do the, do the afternoon and the evening service. You know what I mean? And in between some of that, there might, there might be some study woven in, but like it doesn't have, and then I feel like that was actually the, one of the reasons I wanted to, to, to immigrate to Israel was because when I was in the United States, it very much felt like I had my Jewish self that sort of existed in the synagogue and, and at right. home. But when I was outside, I was, you know, assimilating into the, into the culture that was around me and almost, I mean, not really trying to forget and not really necessarily trying to hide, but it wasn't part of my daily life in a natural way. Whereas right. when I came to Israel, just being here, right, just being in Israel is like I'm, I'm doing it just by existing and going to the supermarket. I'm doing something which is an ultimate Jewish value. You know what I mean? But it wasn't, it, it isn't something that sort of lifestyle, I'll say, in one way. There's one way where it very, like Judaism tends to very naturally sort of weave into your life, and that's when you take a taxi in Israel. I have told many people, because there are many synagogues in, in, this, in this city that I live in, in Jerusalem, where there are no rabbis, Right? It, yeah. They run on their own. They function on their own, and we're not really sure why that's the case. But when you go in a taxi, the taxi driver, if they find out that you're – definitely if they find out you're a rabbi, <clears throat> if they find out that you're studying in, in, a, in what's called a yeshiva, which is like a place for traditional study, or you know, even if you are, they'll all of a sudden, when you haven't heard a, a sermon on a Saturday for years, it feels like, the taxi driver will go, Oh, yeah, I've got a great little uh, piece of Torah to tell you. And they will launch into this piece of Torah. And the person probably isn't necessarily religious at all. But they'll launch into this unbelievable thing. And that's like the place where I feel like I get Torah. It's like when I go in the taxi. You know what I mean? Which doesn't happen all that often. But it's not. So I'm trying to impress you with their memorization or are they just sharing a good story? Definitely an element of trying to impress you. That's for sure, because <laughs> that's just the the nature of a taxi driver. But the but the uh, but they I, I don't know I don't know where it comes from. It's very much like oh, did you hear this one? And they'll just launch into this amazing piece of Torah. And he'll go, wow, I, I should probably tell that over at my Shabbat table on Friday night. Thanks for that. And they'll say, yeah, not a problem. Don't worry about it. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But but it's not. It doesn't. I don't feel like when I'm running around the city and when I'm running around in my life that, you know, and, and that's probably what's amazing about, maybe it's what's amazing about camp. You know what I mean? That like you build an atmosphere, which sort of exists in a bubble. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it could be, but a lot of that we'd bring back home. And I mean, our church really, and it kept doing a lot of that stuff. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it was a, a comp as compartmentalized um, as, yeah, I mean, faith became really integrated. And I remember, I remember I didn't, as I, you know, went to college and um, started, started seeking what my vocation would be, what I, what my career would be. Um, I remember never feeling like, I didn't feel like I had two worlds, but I, I was a, I would always go to camp in the summer, uh, be a counselor or whatever leader I was. And then um, I'd come home and I'd still keep a youth director job at a church. Mm -hmm. um, but then I started, you know, I worked for the Peace Corps for a year and then I worked, um, uh, uh, I was a special education teacher for a number of years, but I still kept that other side gig, but I felt like that helped in, you know, my, keep my ministry informed and kept, uh, kept me true to who I, you know, really so wanted that's to what be. I wanted, I wanted to ask you was, I mean, we were friends for what, solidly three years in college, right? I'd say two and a half, but okay. we Okay, uh, you know, let's not overestimate, I apologize. Yeah, I mean, there was a, there was a rocky period in there. <laughs> <laughs> but we no. were on a break! <laughs> we were on a break! It was clearly a scratch. So, um, <laughs> it was a pick, it was a scratch. No, so, just a little Seinfeld there, I apologize. Yeah. But the, um... But I never felt like you and I ever connected in that way. Like it's only now that I feel like we're having these conversations that, you know, it's amazing to me to know that you from age 14 were sort of thinking and living these things, but you and I didn't talk about it. Yeah, I mean, because they weren't like I, I was trying to. But did you feel like college was a was sort of a place where it you weren't doing that, and it was and like it was separate, or did you have no. places where you had outlets for that? Like, how did that work? No, I felt like college was, was still integrated with it. I mean, I tried to be uh, as authentic to my faith as I could be. No, but I meant, what I meant by that was that, that natural, of what you were talking about at camp, where it was a natural sort of, we were talking about Bible verses, like you and I never talked oh, about right. it. No, I don't, think, I don't think it was all the, it was definitely not like all the time as integrated as it, as it is at camp. Um, but it was part of, you know, just part of who I was. And I think that's the, you know, a more natural way to go about, you know, being a Christian at least is you don't need to go telling everyone you're a Christian or converting people. Um, it's more about living the lifestyle and helping people see, oh, like, you know, when people ask, like, you know, why are you so generous or why, I can't believe you forgave that person. Why'd you do that? You just say, you know, that comes from God. And, and I believe, you know, Jesus got me there. No, it's not something that's of me. So I think there's a part of like, you know, be seen as a person who's following Jesus, not be seen as someone who's better than others. So I, I never really, it wasn't really an overt thing. It was more kind of, this is just who I am. Um, did you feel like that was compartmentalized for you or did you feel like you only needed it internally? I don't think it was compartmentalized. You know, I mean by that is that like, I can meet, I can meet lots of people who, um, who are Jewish, who are uh, overtly either wearing a kippah, right, wearing their, their, the head covering, wearing the tassels, wearing, you know, a like a lot of people wear white shirts and black pants. Immediately I'll know something about them and see that they're a little bit different than the average Joe. And the conversations, even if people see me wearing a kippah, immediately there's going to be a conversation with somebody who, you know, who wants to know more about, oh, what am I doing? You know, and I felt like that wasn't did you miss having those conversations? Did you want to have more of those conversations in college or did you just, you didn't need it? No, I mean, I think I got them 
it, where I needed to get them. I mean, like I said, I was a, I was a youth director for the whole, uh, most of college and then after, after college, um, and was having those, yeah, those conversations. But what, what happened was, um, as I was, uh, I was four years into be as a special ed teacher after I got a degree at URI and, um, I started seeking out, uh, I was going to go get my PhD for, uh, to lead a, a, a program for student, for children with autism. Cause that's, that's the program I was in. I was a, a teacher for, um, specifically, uh, for, uh, students with autism who the public schools could not right. offer adequate services for yep. and, um, and loved it, but saw a way that we could do it differently and really wanted to learn more about how to run it and what psychology goes in. So I was applying for PhD programs. And what happened was uh, I went to my, the pastor I had growing up for a letter of recommendation. And I said, you know, I'm really getting my PhD and, um, uh, uh, want to open a school for children with autism. And the first thing I, I, one of the first things he said, he was retired at this point. One of the first things he said was, gosh, I'm really disappointed. And I thought a PhD to help special, special ed kids. You must have a pretty high bar for, <laughs> for some, some <laughs> obnoxious team. Oh, who went what to a church. waste of a life. <laughs> and, and then he followed up with, because I always thought you, I always thought you'd make a great pastor. And I thought, well, what do you mean? And I think until that point, I had, because he was just this amazing, dynamic guy who was really funny and handsome and could connect with everybody and super smart with um, scripture and, and leadership. He was just, you know, the whole package as a pastor. And I thought, that if that's what it takes, I'm not even interested. I'm just doing this thing because it keeps me busy and I love it and I get paid for it at the same time. Um, and I said, well, I said, I'm not, I'm just not as smart as you. I said, I'm not as dedicated. And he, and he sort of, he kept, <laughs> he kept like shooting me down. He was like, you're, you don't think you're smart enough, but you're going for a PhD program. Uh, <laughs> like, and he I'm was like, it. you're smart again. You got me. <laughs> yeah. And then what he did was genius. He sort of pulled out of the conversation that we were having and said, something to the effect of something he did horribly wrong in his life. Like, did you know I stole a car? I don't remember what it was. Like, yeah. did you know I stole a car or kissed another woman when I was dating my wife, whatever it was. The, none of those might be true if anyone's listening who knows. <laughs> sure, right? don't, don't quote me. I don't, I don't remember what he said, <laughs> but I remember going like, why are you telling me that? Like, what, what sort of confessional booth are we in? And, and then yes. he said, you know, you know, God doesn't um, want you to, Become someone else. God wants you to be yourself and help people like you, um, or who need someone like you. And then he quoted it, it's he quoted and said, um, you know, God doesn't call the equipped; God equips the calls. And he said, you may be called to ministry, and He'll make sure that you get what you got. will make sure that you get what you need to do it well enough. You just got to be yourself. And so that's been the wrestling and the journey ever since is trying not to be wow. like like my mentors, like my teachers. And so what he did, he said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to write you that letter. He said, but I'm not going to give it to you until you go talk to three other people about possibly going to seminary and becoming a pastor. And so in this journey, I, I was seeking out, you know, the letters of recommendation for PhD programs, paying and sending in my applications for PhD programs. Um, and I talked to a couple other folks. 
and every bit of the way people were, you know, one, the pastor I was working for at the time was crying. She was like, Oh, I'm so happy. And she, she immediately um, <laughs> said that they would, they would pay for me to be on a paid vacation and her and her husband gifted me airline tickets to go visit the seminary in California because they thought that'd be perfect. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not, I, I'm just asking you, what would it look like? <laughs> so um, by the way, just sort of side story. When I first started dating my wife, um, the head of the school where I was learning is like her rabbi. And I, and I came up to him and I said, um, I don't know why I just wanted to make a connection with him. I mean, he was this, he's the, he is this fantastic figure who created an unbelievable synagogue on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and then moved in, in like at the height of his career, just up and moved to Israel and, and built the entire town where Leah and I are, and the family are moving to. Um, oh, yeah. and just, I mean, like he's an amazingly charismatic, unbelievable figure. So I felt like I, I wanted to make like some sort of connection. I came up to him and I said, I said, oh, uh, I just wanted to let you know that, uh, that Leah Landown says, hello, it's my wife's maiden name. And he goes, he goes, oh, you're coming over for Shabbat. And I was like, no, 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 sir, sir. I just wanted to say, no, 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 you're coming for Shabbat. You're going to come. And I was like, I was like, sir, I, how did you, and he goes, uh-huh. and he like knew right away. Like, and actually what was fun was, um, he immediately made a call to my future mother-in-law and put in a good word for me when I felt like he barely knew me, which was amazing. It's just a classy, you know, class act. And then when Leah and I actually ended up having that meal together, um, when we got engaged, I did, I hadn't yet been able to procure the ring. So I got her almost like a Cracker Jack ring to hold the place. You know what I mean? And, but what happens is when you, when you wash your hands, um, at the beginning of a meal before you're going to have bread, you do like you wash your hands, you say a blessing over washing your hands. You go to the bread and you don't speak from the time that you wash your hands until you say the blessing over the bread and then you eat the bread. So we washed hands and you're, you have to take certain rings off that could, if you, it's, the, de- the definition is if the ring could get like dough inside it when you're kneading dough, that type of ring has to be taken off. So Leah took off her ring and when she wasn't looking, I switched it to the, to the real ring. And so she couldn't speak and she's at his table going, ah, ah, and like, and he like, of course, was like, they got engaged at my table. Like he was so excited. Anyway, I interrupted your entire flow just to tell you that. Go ahead. I'm no, that's good. That's good. Um, so anyway, yeah, it was just exploring going into professional ministry instead and just really felt compelled and, and every step of the way was like a spiritual, you know, message of, yeah. This is the way we want you to go. Um, so, and just, you know, I was still, how old was I? 24. And uh, so I was still like in for adventure. I was like, yeah, I'll go surf for four years in California, explore, you know, the West Coast and then come back. And um, so, so yeah, so I, I was like, all right, let's do this. And he, the original the pastor I had grown up, John Carlson, he had two letters when I came back, one for a PhD program and one for a seminary. And he was and, like, which, which one do you need? And so I took the, well, I took them both because I had, I had already committed and paid for two PhD programs. <laughs> uh, I, I was like, if I'm going to pay the 75 bucks, I'm going to at least, you know, finish it out. But um, those ones, I don't even remember if I got in or not. I think I threw them away. But um, yeah, so I, I, I flew out to California um, and really it was just about the adventure. You know, I was like, I'm, I'm going to go in on this. I'd love to explore for a bit and, uh, landed in Oakland, uh, 
got picked up in a van and they said, do you want to go, do you want to go surf or do you want to go up to the campus? And I was like, that's not even a question. So like within 20 minutes or so of getting off the plane, I was in the water surfing, you know, my first West coast wave. And it was like, I'm sold. I'm here. I did the rest of the um, orientation was, you know, it was nice and eventful and it sold me on coming out to seminary out here. But, uh, but you know, I just remember them, you know, and it was almost like a, felt like a recruiting trip, you know, like when like the school picks up a football player and takes him to a fancy steak dinner and all that kind of stuff. Felt like surfing was my steak dinner. And so, um, yeah, it just felt right and felt meaningful. And, um, yeah, so kind of backed into it, you know, it was never like, uh, you know, there was no spiritual moment where the Jesus appeared on a piece of toast or, uh, or, uh, you know, a moving, profound ghost appeared in the middle of the night and told me to go to seminary. It was more normal and natural, like this is the way it's going and came through failures and detours. But I got to uh, tell you, though, I, I mean, what I'm what I'm slightly jealous of is that in my sort of journey, I don't know if I, I don't think we spoke about this, but when I was when I was sort of getting my mindset into, you know, I'm going to th- I think I'm going to do this. Um, the only person who directed me, I felt like towards being a rabbi was the cat, the head of the Catholic center at, at the university of Rhode Island. <laughs> and I actually wrote that in my first application to rabbinical school it was like the only person who wanted me to be a rabbi was a Catholic priest. And that's why I'm here. And he was, he was unbelievably, he was really great. Um, but, but the rabbi who I grew up with, who I have, I you know, we never had a strong connection. I think we spoke about how there were some crazy things that happened in my Hebrew school yeah. experience with him. But he, um, when I came to him and I said, you know, I think I'm going to go to rabbinical school. He was like, ha, really? <laughs> and I was like, I, I mean, I know I'm not the star student here, but I, I think I might be able to pull it off. And he, he was like, are you sure? And I mean, that was almost the normal refrain. And I just, I'm so inspired by the people who, and I mean, I feel like in my own sort of journey now for people who come to me and say that they're thinking about rabbinics, I always try to direct them in a positive light. But, but, you know, when I was in the actual interview, you know, I was sitting in the interview and it was actually a harrowing interview that, that when I sat down to, to do, uh, to get into my first rabbinical school, they, um, they actually called me out on it and they said, you wrote in, in your sort of journey to rabbinical school, you wrote all about how I, I, I did this and you never once talked about your community. And my answer was, I said, if I actually listened to the community around me, other than the rabbi who I was presently sort of working with, who was fantastic, um, and I, I came to him sort of very late in the game as I was sort of applying and whatever, and we studied together, and it was really a, a very positive experience in Providence, Rhode Island. But before that, I said, if I had listened to, you know, my family and, and the rabbinical figures that I was with, I wouldn't be here right now. <laughs> it just wouldn't have happened. And I'm so, I'm so inspired that not only were you sort of uplifted and you know helped to you you were sort of you weren't even going that way and they were able to sort of you know, this 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 person was able to turn you around and say hey yeah i mean that's that's really what what that camp and that culture did because many of the people who i went to work for at churches were part of the camp too but um you know they believed in you and gave you a chance at something you didn't earn or deserve or you know show your worth for you know, I had chances to do so much stuff that I was like, are you sure you want to give me this hammer? Or are you sure you trust me with, 
you know, in, being in a cabin with eight kids. <laughs> yeah, right. Are you sure you trust me with the Bible? And I screwed up so many times. I mean, I still screw up at so much. Uh, and, and, you know, I think just the idea that of God's grace giving you second, third, fourth chances and still having an unconditional love just overwhelmed me. And I saw it in, in very real ways. So I think people saw, you know, that sort of like sending, sending someone to seminary is like, you just need to see the seeds or the sprouts, you don't need to see the fruit. And, nice. uh, you know, God's going God's gonna to bring that to completion, not, you know, something we did. So that was, do you remember, I, I just remembered a story when we were in Providence. Um, we would, remember we'd go to um, Dave and Buster's and play pool some nights? Of course. Adam and That's what all rabbis do. So I remember one time we were playing pool, and um, you kept pointing out that there was this group of girls at the bar, they were looking over at us. And so you're like, let's go talk to them. So you and I, maybe Adam, went over and talked to them. And your opening line was sort of like, you're going to love us. Uh, something along the lines of like, you're going to like this. I'm studying to be a rabbi. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think you were like joking because we were so goofy and ridiculous. But it well, was also like, what? It was just a weird... Oh, so like, that, it wasn't inappropriate, but it was also like, what are you getting at here? <laughs> the funny part was, I mean, it, I was probably already, I'm going to sort of in my own defense a little bit, I was probably already at the stage where I felt like the picking up process for me was not only probably not a good thing in my Jewish journey, but also like I knew how bad I was at it, that I was like, either I'm just going to like do George you know, from Seinfeld and be like, I live with my mother. I have no money and I have no job. And the woman's going to be like, Ooh, hello. And like, walk away with me or it isn't going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. and so I, I just, I think, yeah, that, that was probably, uh, if there was any thought process, that was probably the thought process. Well, see, I also think we were, we were pretty silly in the moment. Cause just even before that, when they, they looked at us at one point, you and I did the night at the Roxbury thing, like oh, to them, we were like, me, him, him, me, him, me, look, what, what, him, you want me, you want me. And we me? did like a weird little little dance, and then we just were like, okay, now we've got to walk over. So I think we had this like did silly we energy. Did we have like a conversation with them? Like what happened? Yeah, we kept talking. I think it was just like we just talked and all had a drink together, and then went our, went, went, our, went our ways. It wasn't. It didn't. Nothing came of it. We were just talking and making some friends. And, That's awesome. Uh, I think yeah, that was like it was just funny that your lead off, your lead off line was like, Something like you're gonna like me. I'm studying to be a rabbi, as if that's like the most so wait, desirable thing that someone goes to a bar in nice. Providence. To They're do. like, I'm gonna pick up a rabbi. So the so put on, put on your high heels. We're meeting a rabbi tonight. <laughs> it reminds me. I'm gonna tell you two things that it reminds me of. One, there's a great. Uh, uh, I think it might have been a New Yorker cartoon, where a guy walks in. You see him walking into his house, and the woman is there in sort of his, 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 I think, wife is supposed to be in the kitchen, and she's waiting for him. And he walks in with two, like, chassid-looking, you know, like the black hat, the, the curly Q hair is coming down on the sideburns. And she goes, I said two ribeyes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great joke. I love that yeah. joke. And yeah. the second one is, uh, is that... When I was in, when I was in uh, studying, at uh, first studying in rabbinical school, I taught surfing in, I don't know if you remember this, in Malibu and then uh, at one year in Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz, yeah. I think I met so you there. Santa Cruz when I was there. But when I was in Malibu, I was teaching my first summer there with a guy who I would classify as, you know, male model material. Like he was gorgeous. I mean, he was a so male model. 
Yes. I mean, merman, dad. <laughs> this guy, like, put most men to shame. Like, I watched women constantly. I mean, constantly walk up to him on the beach and be like, hey, here's my phone number. And I'm like, what the? I've never seen anything. Like, no, women won't talk to me. That's why I walk up and say, yeah, I'm going to be a rabbi. You know, like, they won't talk to me. And so he was sitting there, and I'm telling you, to this day, I'm positive of it, that two women who were producers for a show that had not yet come out, which ended up being The Bachelor, okay, walked up to him and said, we're, the show is about to come out. We want you to be on this show. And they were not talking to me, of course. And I went, no, 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 ladies. It wouldn't be fair. The other men would have no chance. And they were like, they're like, who's this guy? And I was like, I'm studying to be a rabbi. So, so, like, this that was guy. always like, yeah, like you were trying to defend yourself. But also, I think the world doesn't see us sometimes in the way of like, oh, that's the desirable. You know, it's funny because I think it's like a whole different world for people. Um, Older folks at our church, at least, maybe it's the same in the Jewish culture, but, you know, in generations past, being a, a pastor, priest, or rabbi meant you, you had already earned this respect and accolades, and the church or temple or synagogue were the center of that town's culture and connection, and, like, people moved to different places and either started a, a synagogue or church, or they moved fo- to be a part of that community, or they found it, right, ahead of time. Right. And now we're sort of like these these weird like leprechaun <laughs> stories of like like I like I feel like a great uh, if I ever like had a T-shirt or a branding or a my own a, a personal podcast it would be the title of it be, would be you're a pastor with a you know big question mark afterwards because nice. I get into the conversation with people and you know goof off and uh, all this other stuff and then by the time it gets to what do you do and I say I'm a pastor people are always like that can't be true pastors are. <laughs> are far removed and always wearing their clergy gear and all that so, kind of stuff. When I was studying, when I was first studying for the rabbinate, when I was in New York, I had a friend and she was like, you know, I was, I was first actually, before I actually started the rabbinical program, I was in education. And that was mostly because I needed to beef up a lot of my Hebrew skills and my learning skills. And I wasn't ready to actually start the rabbinical program, but I, I knew I was sort of on the, the path for that. And mm-hmm. my friend um, there was this woman who I befriended and we became, you know, sort of close over the year that I was studying in the education school. She used to love to like go out and dance. And I was always happy. I was up for like going out and dancing in that point in my life. And she was like, Oh, you got to come out. You got to meet my friend. And I met her friend and her friend was gorgeous. And it turns out she's like, well, yeah, she is gorgeous, but she's Jason Biggs's girlfriend. You know, who, you remember? You yeah. Know, yeah. From America. Uh, and I was like, Oh, Oh, then she's definitely, I'm going to take her away. I mean, she's, I'm a rabbinical student. I've got no money. <laughs> I'm in a dorm with a couple, like four other guys, literally. You're four. like, I'm more Jewish than he is. It's <laughs> like, that guy, I got this. And she wouldn't <laughs> give me the time. I mean, she was really sweet, but she wouldn't give me the time of day. It was like, it was so, I was like, I sure the rabbi thing's not going to work. I feel like it's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to work to get girls. That's, that's, that's oh, what you're yeah. in it for. The girls and the money. Dollar dollar bill, y'all. <laughs> so, um, I have to tell you, I was uh, there's a, I'm put, I'm always giving you my uh, my podcast as we go through this, but I want to tell you actually something really interesting um, from this one that I listened to this week. Um, it's actually called the lineup, and it's the the, the World Surf League, which is the the main mm-hmm. hub of all the competitions for surfing in the world, um, of which sort of sidebar. 
there is a uh, at, at the first Israeli is is actually competing on the world level, the top level, world championship level. Um, and she, mind you, is uh, is really doing well. She got in her first competition. She got in the quarterfinals, and the second competition she got in the semifinals. Um, and she's it's unbelievable. Like I'm I'm freaking out. I'm like Israel is in the world tour. So <laughs> um, so I'm I'm loving that. But when uh, th- they have a, a podcast called uh, the Lineup, which is a um, a great show that uh, kind of goes hot and cold because surfers. Sometimes surfers are really interesting and sometimes surfers are, you know, almost the Spicoli, you know, types where there's, you know, this guy's, you know, dragging out an hour of conversation with these people where they really don't have that much to talk about in general. Let's be clear. This is still early in our podcast and we may be at the same level. We're not not saying not any better or worse than us, but but that's just how we are. We are clergy. So, you know, that's got something going for us. Oh, ladies love us. (laughs) Ladies love us. So the, um, so this past week he had on the commissioner for the uh, for the longboard world tour, which is you know there's a, there's different types of things going on. There's shortboarding, longboarding, whatever. And his name is Devin Howard, and I um, have always really liked his surfing. He's been he was always like a really just a really stylish, classy surfer, um, and and turns out like you know he was actually like a really good guest. I mean he actually is very intelligent. Turns out he was the editor-in-chief of Longboard Magazine for a good chunk of time. So, you, you know, he's read a lot. He's, you know, he's, and I was very impressed. But even better than all of that is that he um, talked a little bit about how he sort of pioneered this sort of mid-length, right? In between the longboards and the shortboards, there's these mid-lengths that are now very, it's like an egg, right, exactly. But they've sort of come into their own. When you when you were when you were doing it, it was either called an egg or a fun board when I was sort of when we were when yeah, I was coming yeah. up with right. And a fun board always meant it was in the eight foot range, right? Somewhere between seven and eight feet before nine feet, because nine foot long boards are when you're talking about long boards. So yeah, yeah. in the eight foot range, that was always like, Oh, you don't really know how to surf. But you don't yeah. want to be on a long board, but you're not good enough to be on a short board, so you'll be on this, like, mid-length. But he sort of pioneered right. so, this, like, like agro, the agro pros all, like, looked down on people who had those fun oh. boards. Yeah. I remember that. That's, that's the first board I had was an 8-6 lost fun board, and it was great for me because I was, you know, I wasn't going out that often and didn't right. have the stamina or upper body strength to paddle in a... Right. Short it, also, board, but... it also helps because it gives you a little bit more stability, right? The board is not as wobbly and as mobile as like a, you know, five foot board, like the ones a lot of guys are riding now that are, they call them their, the, the Ferrari boards, right? And so, but this guy has sort of pioneered, he's one of the people who's brought into the, for, the, 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 the foreground, a sort of mid-length board, which is not to be considered like a, oh, you're just learning board, like a really sort of classic cru- cruisy um, really fun sort of you know, S-turning, and, and, and it can be, it's gorgeous. And he actually put it very well. He said the difference between longboarding and sort of this mid-range board and shortboarding is that you're, you're, you're not doing a physical sport with the wave. You're dancing with the wave. That's how I've yeah, always yeah. envisioned longboarding, and it's a beautiful thing. And I like doing all of them, for, for, for just so you know. But uh, when I was in um, – so he was talking all about this mid-range board, and I was – and I had this sudden flashback to when I was teaching in Malibu and I bought a mid-range board 
And it was, I don't know how popular it was at that time, but it was starting to become a thing where people were looking into this mid-range board. And I had tried uh, a board out when I was you know, teaching one day. I said, oh, this board looked really interesting. I could try it out. And it was this mid-length board. I really liked the way that it rode. So I went to the store. I almost bought the same exact thing. And the guy talked me out of it and said, no, 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 you need this board, which is much more of an older style. And I ended up purchasing it. And I purchased it for two reasons. One was for a way, it was for this wave just down the beach from where I was teaching called Leo Carrillo. Because you could get into the waves a little bit early and you could um, get behind it. it. was Everybody was there. It was like a long border. So you could get deeper and you could get position on the wave. And, and then it would ride well because you didn't want a short board at that point. That's one reason I got it. The other reason I got it was from Malibu. Malibu, which I had surfed a bunch of times, which is like the quintessential longboard wave, has a section in the middle that gets really fast. And when you're on the longboard, you're not expecting it. You don't really make it through that section. You miss the whole second half of the wave, which is really long and really fun. And it's like a, it's just it, it's painful to watch it go by. And I bought this board, and I thought, this board probably will work really well going right in that middle section. And I'll, I'll be able to make it through there, and it's cruisy, and it's not like a short board. You don't want a short board in that way because it's fat and slopey. Anyway, long story short, this one morning, the first morning I get that board out, which is still one of my favorite boards, it's about shoulder high, so it's like five feet. It's really clean. It's good. There's me and the guy I'm teaching with and two other people, um, and I... I'm take, I took off on this wave, and then I hit that middle section. I got completely covered over by the wave. I got totally in the barrel. And as I'm in the barrel trying to keep myself together and not lose it, because I usually fall off in the middle of, of, of intense situations like that, yeah. I see a guy paddling in you know, to the wave on that second section, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, and I scream him off, and he, and, he, and he backs off. Now, I knew when I saw the guy that he was actually a professional surfer. I pull out of the wave. At the end, I paddle back out, and the guy gives me this big thumbs up, and it and it is he who was on that podcast uh, talking all about mid-length boards. Devin Howard, gave, yeah. Devin Howard gave me this thumbs up, and I, I for, to this day, I'm like, I got a thumbs up, <laughs> Howard, man. And it's like, from the Godfather. From the Godfather. But at that time, I had no idea that he was into this, and it was becoming a thing, and you know, and he... Um, yeah, he's just, if you, if you ever want to find a, 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 like I said, it's touch and go, but it's a great podcast about surfing for people to check cool. out. Well, this seems like a good place to stop, but I, I wonder if next time we talk more about like kind of the spiritual nature and connection of surfing, because I think that's both part of, part of why we keep up with it. For sure. For sure. Cool. All right. It's on the count really of three, good. what's the name of the podcast? One, two, three, Go. You'll never believe this. What? What did you say? I didn't even hear what you said. What did you say? Stop. Stop shooting yourself. <laughs> nice. All right. I think we're going to get it one day, guys. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you, Jamie. Take you later.